Amen, amen. So we are continuing on in our series called uh, Sacred and Secular, Sacred Secular, and uh, Pastor Greg took up the last two weeks. I'm going to share with you this morning, and then Brody's going to share with you next week. And this morning we are talking about a specific topic, and uh, it is called incarnational living or incarnational ministry, not reincarnation, as one of the worship team members thought that's what the subject was on today, (laughs) but it's not. It's incarnational, and I am going to define that for you in just a minute, but in John chapter 20, starting in verse 19 through 22, I just want to read these verses to you. Jesus is speaking. It says, on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So this is one of my favorite parts of Scripture. Obviously, this is after the resurrection. The, the disciples and the apostles have endured the, the, the horror of the cross and the, the arrest of Jesus and all of that, and they had seen their Savior hanging and then be buried in a tomb. But three days later, he did rise from the dead, just as he said he would. And then they scattered amongst the town, and they were all fearful because the Jewish leaders were basically pursuing them, arresting them, and trying to put them in jail for following Jesus. And uh, the Roman people weren't too excited about him as either. And so Jesus shows up as they were secretly together behind locked doors. He appears to them in his resurrected condition, and he says a few things to him that are very important for us to understand. First, he says, peace be with you. So in their present circumstances, Jesus was announcing to them that they could have peace that is beyond all of their situation, all of their circumstances, beyond their own understanding. And so he was announcing to them that they could have peace, not just because he was there, but because, and specifically because, he had risen. How amazing is that? He had risen. Death could not hold him down. Just as that last song we sang, it's such an awesome proclamation for us. But then he also said, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And this is sort of the anchor verse that I want to hang on to as we have our lesson today. Because when we talk about this whole idea of what is incarnational living, what does the word incarnational mean? Jesus actually was the fulfillment of the incarnation of God. In fact, the definition is very simply these three things that I found, which is awesome that they're still found in Webster's Dictionary. They haven't gone and uh, you know, done the whole Wikipedia thing and changed it up. But this is what Webster says, incarnational. Number one, it says, the, em- the embodiment of a deity or spirit in some earthly form. It also says the union of divinity with humanity in Jesus Christ. And then the third is that it's a concrete or actual form of a quality or concept, especially a person showing a trait or typical character to a marked degree. So in other words, it is this whole concept of God coming and putting skin on. He leaves heaven. He wraps himself in humanity. He enters into our world, not just as a momentary thing, but he was born, lived, and died the life that all of us will experience personally. 
And so he no longer was in this distance far away. He actually entered into his creation and became one of us. It's incredibly mysterious. It will blow your mind if you sit and think of it too much. And I'm not even going to try to define it any more than what I've said because I don't have enough brains in me. It's above my pay grade, as some people have said before. And when you look in the Old Testament and you think about how God revealed himself to people, it started sort of uh, nebulous. In other words, when you think of like Genesis chapter 18 with Abraham, uh, here's Abraham living this pagan life in a pagan place, just worshiping pagan gods, and all of a sudden, God shows up to him. He appears to him, and it's almost, in some translation, says that it's an angelic form with two other guys. And so three of these angelic forms, these messengers, show up to Abraham. They call him out. They commission him to go forward, that he's going to give him these promises, that he's going to make him a father of many nations, and all these wonderful things. But he shows up to Abraham in that way. Later on, he gives him a dream in other ways. Then you fast forward after they become the nation that God said they were going to be, and then they get taken into, into, uh, into captivity with Egypt. God raises up Moses to deliver them out, but before he appears to the people in great power with the plagues, he appears to Moses in the form of a burning bush, still not yet incarnate. It's not just some angelic form, it's not just some burning bush, but he speaks to him through that. Later on, after the people are delivered out of Egypt, and still in the Old Testament, and they're worshiping God in the temple, God's Shekinah glory, his very presence, rests in the Holy of Holies. The Holy Spirit was resting in the Ark of the Covenant. And once a year, a priest could go back and have access to him on behalf of the people, yet still not incarnate. Incredibly powerful, incredibly amazing. He still was tabernacling with the people that he had created, with his creation and loving them, but still not yet incarnate. It wasn't until you get to the New Testament with Jesus, when you experience the incarnation of God, where God becomes man, and he fulfills the prophecy of the Old Testament, Emmanuel, God with us, as Isaiah said. It's quoted so many times in the Christmas season because that is what most of our minds go to when we think of the incarnation of God, because it's usually the Christmas season when we start to reflect on how God became a man, a baby born in a manger, given his life later for us. In fact, I found an amazing quote by Dr. Tony Evans. This is really cool. He says, and if you know Dr. Tony Evans, um, for some of you older people in here, there was a comedian named Richard Pryor back in the day. Whenever I read something from Tony Evans, I hear his voice in my head because they sounded similar. And uh, yeah, I know, I need help. Uh, so in your mind, you can hear his voice as I'm reading this. If you were to come over to my house around Christmas time, you would notice a number of fairly large and wrapped gift boxes sitting near the front door of our home. These gloriously decorated boxes have all the colors of Christmas. They have all the glitter and shine assorted with the most materialistic holiday of the season. They are even all tied up with great big bows. There is only one problem with the boxes in the front of my house, though. They are empty. If anyone were to come and take them when we weren't looking, they would be taking nothing more than a prettified nothingness. The packages contain the fanfare and all of the ceremonial aspects of Christmas, but have no real substance of the actual presentation. In many ways, these packages reflect and represent a lot of Christians today. 
They dress to the nines in the Christian paraphernalia in our culture. They carry their Bible underneath their arm. They attend church, teach Sunday school, and all the else. Yet if we were to peel back the paper, the tape, and the bows, oftentimes we would not be able to locate the vibrant, life-giving, and abundant life of Jesus Christ within. Without Jesus, Christianity is just another religion among many. After all, he is the very essence of God who came not only to take away the sins of the world, but to reveal the Father to us in the flesh. And that is exactly right. So many times, our view of what God has done, our view of who God is, we miss the whole concept of what has truly happened in the incarnation of God becoming a man. It really dawned on me one time when I was thinking about the life of Christ, how when he would be in his ministry times and he would be worn out or tired, and the Bible says there's many times where he would just steal away to a secluded place to recharge, he would get tired. It like dawned on me, he actually got tired. Uh, Or that he would be hungry when he would fast for 40 days and then be tempted by the enemy, that he would be tempted just like you and me. These aspects of his humanity are easily lost because I think in our minds, oftentimes when we think about God, we understand he rose from the dead, we understand he created everything, but sometimes this whole three-year, or 30-year actually, uh, lifespan that he had, in the three years of his ministry, we miss the incredible touch that he had becoming fully man. We miss the idea that when he struggled, he can identify with what it feels like when you struggle. When he had sorrow, when he had pain, he can identify when we go through those same things. And this is very important for us because it shows us that our God is not some far distant thing that's out there waiting for us to just excel to his level at some possible way through our own effort, but yet he comes down to us and becomes one of us and lives a life for us that we can't do on our own and experiences all of the difficulties, all of the trials, all of the pain of this broken world and all that it has to offer in an effort to bring us back into correction, into rightness so that we can know him the way we need to know him. He is not far off. He is with us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Amen? This is the God we serve. And when he ascended up into heaven, he did not leave us alone. Just as I read in John, he gave us his Holy Spirit. The whole incarnation is attached very closely to the term mission. Mission. We have been given a commission with God. In, in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus gives the great commission. Some of you guys know it. Go out into all the world. Preach the gospel to all creation. Teaching them to obey everything I have remarked. Teaching them to obey everything I have taught you, reminding them of those things, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Mark's gospel talks about some of the things that we will, will accompany those believers on the mission. We will heal the sick, we will handle snakes, drink po- deadly poisons, and it won't hurt us. We're not going to do that today or anytime in, this, in the future. But just so you know, those things are added to it. And he says, I will give you this mission that you will accompany on, just as the Father has sent me. I am also sending you, he said in John chapter 20. And when you think about it, this mission is demonstrated first by the Father giving the Son. The Father gave the Son first. Colossians 1.15. Listen to some of these verses. I love them. Colossians 1.15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all of creation. 
Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of heaven. Hebrews there is talking about the mission fulfilled. God sends Jesus to live, to die, to resurrect, and then once he's overcome sin and death, he can sit down at the right hand of the Father in his place of glory that God had destined for him all along. It also, also, says, it also says in John chapter 1, listen to this, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And then when you go down to verse 14, it says, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and the only Son, the one who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one ever has seen God, but the one and only Son, who Himself is God and is in closest relationship with the Father because He's made Him known. It's very clear from Scripture that God had a plan from the beginning, starting at the, at the fall in Genesis chapter 3, to bring us back into right relationship, and it was going to involve this word mission, and it was going to involve God becoming incarnate and living a life amongst us. And so the Father sends the Son. Secondly, the Son sends the Spirit. <laughs> Sorry. I'm not sure if my notes... Oh, good. They are. Great. Thank you. The Son sends the Spirit. In Luke chapter 24, I love this. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. He, he reiterates this in Acts chapter... Uh, I'm sorry, in John chapter 14. And it says, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. And so God sends the Son. The Son sends the Spirit. The Spirit empowers the church, and the church is born in Acts chapter 2. It is all part of the mission of God. This whole concept where God wants to bring back those that He's created into right relationship with him. It is God's greatest passion. It is his greatest desire to see that the lost sheep would come back into the fold of God, that those that are lost would be found, those that are far off would be known, those that are hurting would be healed, that the mission of God would be accomplished not just through Jesus, not just through the Spirit, but through the church, you and I. He wanted to bring us into a place to join into that mission. And this is my third point, that as the Father sends the Spirit, I'm sorry, the Father sends the Son, the Son sends the Spirit, the Spirit sends the church. And the best verse I could find was Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where it says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in both Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. You see, God wasn't just interested in the few 12 disciples he wasn't just interested in Jerusalem. He said, I want the entire earth to know me. I want the entire world to have access to me. And I want them to be able to be saved through me. And so he sends Jesus as this incarnate life given for us. And then he empowers us with the same spirit that rose him from the dead and sends us on mission with him. And this is the blending of the sacred and the secular. I am so tongue-tied this morning, I apologize. This is what happens, is that you and I, 
We have been given the gift of salvation. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. It's not about just this. It's about taking it out into the uttermost parts of the earth. And that is exactly what God has desired for us. And our God's a missionary God. I mean, we are a missionary people if we follow a missionary God. And God is, has a missional impulse. When you get past the Gospels and you read through the book of Acts and then you jump into the, the other books after Acts, the epistles, all you're going to see is more of God reaching out, finding lost people. That's what it's all about. In fact, the book of Acts is all about the spread of the church, the, the empowering and spreading of the church and the miracles that follow along with it. And the epistles are telling us how to live while we're on mission. What is appropriate? How do we do these things? What does worship look like? All of these wonderful things so that we can be exactly what God wants us to be. He's a missional God and we are a missional people. It's just that simple. He's advancing his kingdom. And Jesus gave an amazing parable at one point when he's talking about the parable of the seeds and the sower. Some of you guys know it. He talks about how he casts, the sower casts seeds out. And the seeds, some of them fall on good ground, some fall on hard ground, some of them are plucked up by birds. And there's all these parallels to modern day life on what that means when the seeds are cast. You know, the good ground is the heart that hears the word of God and receives the word of God. And he says that the result of that is that it will actually grow up, have roots, and bear fruit. He says some people hear it, it grows up quickly, and the sun scorches it out. This is a response to it, but yet he says that the cares of this world are the things that come in and, and, and destroy it. He says weeds come in. He says birds come in. Birds are satanic, and they pluck away the seeds that have been given as a promise. And so he gives this parable of seeds as a way of casting and sending and growing the kingdom. And we are all casting seeds. We're casting the gospel. We're, we're, sent, we're spreading the seeds as God would want. He hasn't even hidden this from us. And Paul, as he came into his ministry, he was the perfect example of this. He took the gospel to the outermost parts of the world. So I wanted to speak to a little bit about two things here. One is, how does incarnation work? And secondly, how does incarnation look for us? I'm going to be a little bit practical. Next week, Pastor Brody, I'm really excited about it. He's going to share, like, how do we make this real in everyday life? And so what I'm hoping to do is lay a good found foundation for him to build on, and uh, we'll see how that goes. But how does incarnation work? Well, this is how it works. Jesus, when he became a man, he wasn't some crazy guy who walked two feet off the, you know, the surface of the ground and, and you know, was untouchable. He actually got in with the people. In fact, he was in with the least desirable of people, so much so that he developed a reputation by those religious people that he was hanging out with drunkards, tax collectors, and prostitutes. He was all about the people. He understood and he spoke the language of the people. Ironically, Jesus spoke three languages, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. Most people don't know that. He was largely uneducated. I guess that's where the God part comes in, huh? <laughs> Jesus knew the culture inside and out. And ironically, he didn't care. Cultural norms were not something that he really paid too much attention to. If you don't believe me, just go read the story about the woman at the well. 
He broke like five cultural norms just having the conversation with her. It's amazing. And Jesus disrupted the established religious state. He really did. It's kind of cool. And you understand this when you get to like John chapter 3 when Jesus is beginning to perform miracles. He's developing a a reputation. People are beginning to follow him. And this Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus comes to him and he comes to him under the cover of darkness. He comes to him because he has influence on the Pharisees. He's one of the leaders and he just wants to investigate the claims of Jesus but he can't do it openly. He has to do it hidden because the religious system of the day was so against what Jesus was doing because they had control and power and Jesus was bringing the kingdom of God to them with grace, with power, with authority, with love, something that all of those things had been somehow diminished in their religious system. He was establishing the relationship with the living God. He literally was becoming the bridge between the living God and broken humanity. It was amazing. So incarnation works because Jesus became understanding and familiar. He knew what he was walking into, the people he was walking around, and he did not shun them. He knew that they were like sheep without a shepherd, And he loved them greatly. Incarnation in our lives, the Spirit of God living in us, as we try and live out this faith, it only becomes real when we can actually live within the life that we have been given in this time that we've been living in. And this is what I want to say. Too many Christians build a a bubble, a Christian bubble, and they live in it. I've said this before. We have our own music, we have our own movies, we have our own cable channels, we have our own radio stations, and basically those things, the good that they offer, which they are good, they've become an escape place for so many believers, where they don't even understand what music is popular or why it's so popular. They don't understand the draw of certain movies or television shows. They don't take the time to look at it. They want to protect themselves, which I get that. I have kids and I understand. There's some things you just don't want to put your loved ones in front of. But we've so retreated that we've lost our presence in everyday culture. We do go to work because we have to. But if we could get over that hump, we'd probably disappear. Honestly. And that is not what God intended. We need to burst the bubble. We need to be like Jesus and invade the culture around us. And so this brings me to the last points of, I have four ways that how incarnation looks in the life of a believer. The first one is is that we need to be walking in the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit. This is very, very important. Remember, when Jesus said, as the Father sent me, I am also sending you, and then it says, with these words, he breathed on them and gave them the Holy Spirit. This is very important for us. The Spirit of God is the essence of God. It's the presence of God. It's who he, very, he is in our lives. And this is the part where God works himself out of our lives. Just this week, we were, uh, had our VBS. It was so much fun to see all these little kids running around. And I'm not going to lie, there's something about VBS when you get to the end of the day. It's only like four hours. You are exhausted. And I didn't even do that much. 
But I would go home and want to take a nap. I don't know what it was. I mean, you know, and it was only like 60 kids. But, I mean, it's still crazy, a lot of fun. On the last day, I had the privilege of teaching the mission station. And we were learning about the gifts of the, or the, the fruits of the Holy Spirit. And we got to make a spirit pie. <laughs> it sounds crazy, doesn't it? But they had a craft where all of the fruits of the Holy Spirit made up all the pieces of the pie. And they got to paint it and decorate it and take it home with them and all of that. And we were talking about the fruits of the Spirit. The fruits of the Spirit are the character traits of God's nature working itself out in our lives. So how you respond in situations, how you speak, the desires you have, the things of your life, as Jesus oozes out of who you are as a person, are the very fruits of the Holy Spirit. The love, the joy, the peace, the, the, all of the, the gentleness, the kindness, all of those things. We have to have the Holy Spirit, in order to invade our culture with any success. In John chapter 3, it says, and this is how we know that he, lives, that he lives in us. We know it by the Spirit he gave us. You have a wonderful gift. The Holy Spirit's been given to us to, be, to carry us out and to empower us, to power us over the power of sin. The Holy Spirit is the victor of sin in our lives. To say No to stand in temptation. The Holy Spirit is the power for healing. It's Him. It's all Him. Every bit of it. And He said, a mustard seed of faith will move a mountain. He moves the mountain, not you. Praise God as Holy Spirit lives in you. The Spirit is the leading in all truth. In other words, the whisper of His voice into your heart in discernment, you know that's not right or that sounds right. It resonates because the Spirit of truth is in you. You have to understand you need the Holy Spirit if you want to successfully accomplish the mission God has for you. And we are all on mission. Secondly, we need to be loving the things that God loves the way that God loves them. This is really important. The Christian church right now has a somewhat of a black eye because we're known for everything that we're against. And we earned it. We were outspoken on some things, and I think it would have been us, it would have served the kingdom better to just hold our tongue a little bit and love a lot more. Now, love is a, an amazing thing, and the compassion that Jesus demonstrated in his ministry is amazing. Just do a word study on your own time through the Gospels. Every time that it mentions that Jesus had compassion, you'll see all the different ways. I did a, a few of them here. Jesus is a compassionate Savior. There's four ways that I can demonstrate how he was compassionate. Uh, the first one is he loved the sick. Listen to this. In Matthew chapter 14, when Jesus landed and he saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. He had been on one side of the Sea of Galilee. He a crowd grew so big that he jumps in a boat to, to get away from them, goes to the other side, only to be met by another crowd. And it says that instead of being irritated by them, he had compassion on them. He saw the pain, he saw the hurt, and he healed their sick. The blind, he had compassion on the blind. Matthew chapter 20, it says Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they were healed and they followed him. He's in, this is in reference to the two blind guys that were calling out to him along the path. And it says that he saw them, he had compassion on them. The leper. We don't see lepers today, but there's an amazing parallel that we can apply to our own lives. But in Mark chapter 1, it says that a man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees. 
If you are willing, you can make me clean. Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. That alone, just touching a leper was unheard of. It, made, it would have, quote unquote, made Jesus unclean by the religious community. He was touching something unclean. But yet, miraculously, he had compassion and he healed. It goes on. The hungry. Matthew chapter 15. Jesus called his disciples to him after they had been following him. And he says, uh, I have compassion on these people. But they've already been with me for three days and they haven't had anything to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry or they might collapse on the way. In other words, he knew, and this is right before the miracle of the bread and the fishes. He had compassion on the hungry. It goes on in Scripture to talk about the demon-possessed. So Jesus had compassion on those bound up by the enemy. He had compassion on the prodigal, where he literally, the parable of the prodigal, the story of the prodigal son, he wraps his arms around his neck when he returns home. He doesn't shun him. He receives him. And the grieving. Two particular places that caught my attention were Luke chapter 7, where the widow, her son had died in the village of Nain. And it says that Jesus' heart went out to her when he saw her weeping and he raised her son from the dead. And then the other place in Scripture was out of Mark's Gospel where Jairus' 12-year-old daughter had died. And Jesus said to her, he took her, in, he took her parents and two of the disciples into the room with him where she lay dead. And in Aramaic, he called her a little child And he rose her from the dead. His heart, that Aramaic term, by the way, was an affectionate term of father over daughter. Almost like you would look at your daughter and say, oh, little daughter. And Jesus looked at this dead little girl with great compassion. You see, when we begin to love people the way that God loves them, the Holy Spirit begins to empower. And all of a sudden, we are becoming the incarnate of God in our community, in our lives. Because the Holy Spirit is living himself out through you in the way that you love and care and speak and do this thing we call life. I just have two more points real quickly. The, the third one is, is that we need to be pointing people to God through Jesus. This is essential. Sometimes we get on mission and we begin to love people and we surround ourselves with lost people, but there's going to come a point where you get to share the truth for them and to them. It is of no benefit to just simply love on them and have them around. You have to share the truth with them. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Later on, Paul says in Romans, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God that brings salvation for everyone. You see, there's power in the gospel. And when you combine the gospel truth with the love of God over things, it's an unstoppable force. It's unstoppable. Because the truth of God's word and the power of the gospel can't be stopped. It can be slowed down. It can be diverted. But if we can love people the way Christ loves people and we combine it with the gospel, it would be amazing. Lastly, this is more of an exhortation for us this morning. It's that we would express Jesus in every part of our culture. You know, your kid's sports team, are you a coach, your team parent, to your kid's teachers at work around the water cooler, while you're driving, 
That's not my best place to express Jesus too much. To our neighbors. You know, uh, simply just going over, talking to our neighbors, asking them how they're doing. We begin to just reach out and express Jesus to every area of our culture where we find ourselves is the first step of moving forward. But we must be filled with the Spirit. We must understand the mission. We must love people the way that God loves them. And we must be willing to share the gospel truth in the most loving way. Amen? All right. I can't wait till next week for Pastor Brody. He's going to give us some real practical ways and fun things that we can do to begin to live incarnationally. But let me pray for you this morning as we close. Father God, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for your grace and your love. We thank you, God, that even this morning as we were worshiping and praying, you are here. And we want to be a people who know you. We want to be a people, Lord God, who express you rightly. So Father, I ask for your help. I ask for you to fill us with your spirit. To help us to just live out this life, to get on mission with you. Lord, where we are weak, we pray that you would be strong. Where we might be fearful or nervous, may you give us boldness and courage. Lord, we thank you that you did not leave us alone. You came to be with us. That we can know you forever. So Lord, we just give these things to you. We ask for you to help us to be missionally minded, missionally hearted. And that we would honor all that you have for us, Lord. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen.